And so, Lord, we turn to you right now and we ask that you would indeed accomplish your purposes in our lives as we turn to your word and study your word during this hour. Open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts and reveal to us what you would have us know today. We give you thanks and praise for your great love for us that is made manifest to us, made known to us through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen. So, does anybody have any questions from last week? I'm sure you're used to me asking this, but um, it helps if you, you know, if you went away from last week and wondered, well, what was all that about? Or you had another thought about it that hadn't occurred to you while you were sitting here. Any ideas? Last week we looked at um, John 7, and it was verses 37 through 52. Anybody? Nobody? We'll have another moment of awkward silence just in case. Because I would say, if you have a question, someone else is bound to have the same question. And you're doing us all a favor by having the courage to ask it. Okay. Great. So do we remember where Jesus is? Jesus is in Jerusalem, right? And it's the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is one of the greatest feasts of the Jews, where they celebrated and remembered those years in the wilderness, those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, when the Lord provided for them. The Lord provided, um, well, they lived in tents, so they had these temporary shelters, or tabernacles, and God himself lived in a tabernacle. His worship was... um, not in a temple, not in a house of worship, but rather in a, a tent, a temporary dwelling. And then, the, um, and then he fed, he first of all gave them water in the middle of the desert when they needed it. He gave them food and the manna was rained down from heaven when they needed bread. And then they also um, really, really wanted meat too. And remember, he sent the quail. So during this feast, they would celebrate the Lord's provision for them in the desert. Um, but right now, so that's all of chapter 7 in John, and it's also the setting for all of chapter 8 in John. And the passage that we're looking at for today is a funny little passage. I don't know about you, but as you're looking at your Bible, is, it, is this passage bracketed off? Are there, yours is? Do you see that? It's verse, starts at verse 53, and it goes to verse 11 of chapter 8. Do you know, does your Bible tell you why it's bracketed off? What does it say? Uh, it says, um, this episode is not found in the most authoritative manuscripts. Right. Does anybody else have that little note in their Bibles? Yeah. Did you know that about this passage? I know. Isn't it funny that it, that you, you know, once you read, it's helpful to have a study Bible because you can read, if you can put your glasses on and actually see those little tiny notes, you'll see that um, there's some interesting information about almost every single passage. And with this passage itself, um, well, yeah, it says that the, essentially it's put in brackets in our Bibles because it is not found, these verses are not found in the earliest Greek manuscripts. Remember that um, from the original <coughs> copies of the Gospels that were passed around, first it started out, you know, one Gospel would be passed around to the different churches around the Mediterranean basin. And um, what would happen is papyrus or paper, 
disintegrates. I don't know about you, but um, my books from 10 years ago already smell musty. And I think, well, that's not very long. They shouldn't smell that musty already, but they do. All my college books are stinky already. And paper disintegrates. So for those um, first manuscripts of scripture, they knew they knew that these texts would just start to disintegrate. The papyrus or paper would um, not last very long. That's why written in an oral culture, written stories like this, written manuscripts were thought to be unreliable. So, um, so what would happen was the early church would copy them out. And over the centuries, it was the monks who um, had this special job copying word for word. Now remember, this is long before the printing press. Word for word, they would copy out the Greek manuscripts of the Bible. Um, so what you'll see is that in the earliest Greek manuscripts, there's no mention of this passage. It just does not occur in any of them. And then in the later ones, we see it. But it's as though the people copying the manuscripts didn't know where it belonged. Because some of the groups of manuscripts, remember, it's sort of like a family tree. That if they're, if they're copying word for word these manuscripts, some that are copied in this one monastery, in this one place, are going to have more in common than those in other places. Have any of you heard this about the origins of scripture and how the manuscripts developed over time? How do we get what we have right here in our Bibles? That's essentially the question when we look at these manuscripts and the texts. Um, well, one little sidebar about this. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, well, the Bible is unreliable because of this, because they think of this copying of the manuscripts as a game of telephone? Did you ever play a game of telephone on a bus? As a kid, we would always play it on the school bus so that someone in the back seat of the school bus would whisper something in the ear of the person in front of them, and they would whisper it in the ear of the next person and the next person and the next person and the next person. And then the person at the front of the bus would stand up and say what the message was, and everybody would laugh because it was very different than what the original message was, right? A lot of people look at the texts of the Bible and say, especially very liberal, skeptical scholars, and then their opinions get so popular in the media and in our society because people are looking for a reason to doubt Holy Scripture and its authority, unfortunately, which is the way it is, human nature. Um, and so what you'll see is people will say, well, this text, this text, the manuscripts, the development of the text of scripture is like a game of telephone. So we can't be sure that what we have now is what was originally intended. Well, I will tell you, scientifically, that's bunk. Thank goodness. Because um, what you'll see is that of the manuscripts, the percentage of what is in common, even from these manuscripts that were copied all around the Mediterranean basin and then all the way through Europe, you know, in these, all, all these different ma um, monasteries, there is so much in common. The amount of material that's in common is unheard of. It is through the roof, such a high percentage, that the, very, the variations that we have between, well, this manuscript says this word and this one says this word, is so negligible. that. And I just thank God for it because scientifically it's a miracle mm -hmm. that it, we would have so much in common throughout the manuscripts. So what you'll see in your Bible, you know, if you have your reading, I need different glasses almost. I'm not even of an age yet, but I almost, I have to pull my Bible up really close to my face to see the little tiny writing. But very often, you'll see um, very tiny writing at the bottom, and it'll say, some manuscripts say 
he instead of whatever's in our copy. Some say your God. And when you look at the variation, it's so minor. But your Bible wants to tell you, you know, the people who put together your, this translation, whatever translation you're using, want to make sure you know that there are some variations in the manuscripts. But I encourage you to put on your glasses and look at those little tiny notes because one of the things it'll do is it'll encourage you about how much is in common. You know, the, the wording is really not that different. Really, and in very few instances, does the change of wording actually change the meaning of a passage. So I just wanted to give you a little pause on that and say, praise God, hallelujah, that there is so much in common in, um, among the manuscripts that make up the Bible. Does that, is that confusing to any of you? Have any of you heard this discussion before? You've heard it before? Okay, good. Anyone want to have any questions about that and about the manuscripts and the process? I'm not doing it. I'm not going into very much detail about it, but okay. Well, so with this passage, with this passage from John that we have in John 7 and 8, the, it's not in the earliest manuscripts, and in the later manuscripts, they, different groups of manuscripts put it in a different place. The most put it where we have it. But there are some that put it earlier in chapter 7. Some put it in Luke. And you'll find this very passage in Luke's gospel. Some put it at the end of John's gospel, at, at the very end of chapter 21 of John's gospel. Almost as if to say it's an appendix. We believe that this is historical, that Jesus did this, but we don't know where to put it. We don't know where it came from. So we're just going to tack it on the end, and you can deal with it however you want to deal with it. Um, so all that to say that um, we, and then, so there's this external evidence that it was probably not in this place, very unlikely that it was in this place in John's gospel. But um, does that mean that it's scripture? Well, yes. And the early church really believed it was scripture, otherwise they wouldn't have put it in the the Gospels that they're passing around. They believed that it was an event that happened in Jesus' life. And they had the testimony of the apostles to corroborate that. Um, remember how we were talking about authority a couple weeks ago and how it's um, almost like this parentage of authority, looking back to, well, so-and-so sat at the feet of so-and-so, who sat at the feet of so-and-so, who sat at the feet of John, who sat at the feet of Jesus. And this, there's this parentage of authenticating teaching that authenticates um, the oral tradition. So um, we have a, we, we can, I think we can be pretty confident that this is um, meant to be in our Bible, that God means for this to be in our Bible, that it is inspired. You'll hear some people say it's not, but I believe it is. Um, and then there's stuff within the passage itself, some grammar, some word choices, some... Um, just some use of vocabulary and locations. For example, the use of the word the scribes. In John's gospel, we don't have scribes anywhere. We talk about the Pharisees. He talks about the Pharisees. He talks about the high priests. But he never mentions this third group of Jewish religious authorities, the scribes. So, but, Luke, but this little passage mentions it. And Luke and the other synoptic gospels, so Matthew and Mark, also mention scribes. So we think that one of them might have been the authors of this passage. Um, the, other, the other indicator is the Mount of Olives. John never mentions the Mount of Olives. But the other three gospel writers tell us that Jesus stayed when he was in Jerusalem. He spent the night on the Mount of Olives. He was staying somewhere there. And then in the morning, he would commute into the city, go into the temple, and teach in the temple. 
and then he'd go back out at night to the Mount of Olives. That's exactly what our passage here says. So I think that it's very likely it is a, another one of the gospel writers who wrote it. We just don't know the original context. Um, so I think we can have confidence that this is a Christian text, that it's apostolic, um, meaning that it comes from apostolic testimony from one of those first 12 um, disciples who lived with Jesus, who knew Jesus during his earthly ministry, and that even if the language is not from John, the spirit is certainly from John. We see this in the way Jesus deals with this woman so tenderly and compassionately, the way he is so intent on preserving her life. And we know that to be in the character of Jesus from what we see elsewhere in the Gospels. Um, we know that that's the character of mercy that God himself has, right? We see this all throughout the Old Testament, that God is steadfast. Um, we see it in Jonah, where Jonah is so upset and doesn't want to go to Nineveh and preach about repentance because he says, no, because when they repent, you're not going to smite them. And there are enemies. I'd so much rather you were a God of Strict justice without justice and mercy. Don't have mercy on them. They are the enemies of Israel. I'm not going to go to Nineveh because you won't smite them. They'll repent. You're so soft-hearted and merciful. It's terrible. But <laughs> it's true. That's, I love the book of Jonah. Maybe one day. But so, um, so we see this um, character of mercy is, in God, is um, a quality of God himself, and it's a quality of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ. So we can, with confidence, look at this passage, know that it's scripture, and then study it, asking God to use it in our lives. Any questions before we look at the actual passage about all of that? I don't know if you've got a chance to read it. Are you familiar with this passage? It's pretty much a famous passage about this woman caught in adultery and Jesus' response to her. I'm taking a breath. You can catch me now if you have any questions. Yeah? Is there any other bracketed material? Yes. What a good question, Shirley. Okay, go to Mark 16. Do you see it? <clears throat> Do you see how beginning at verse 9 of Mark 16, my Bible uses the double brackets. Yours too? And what does it say at the beginning of verse 9? Is there a note? Yes, the yes. Possibly written, is that the one you want? Both. Possibly, well, the short ending, it says, though present in some manuscripts, this ending is clearly different from the rest of Mark in style and understanding of Jesus. And, um, and then the second one, it says the longer ending, possibly written in the early 2nd century and appended to the gospel later in the 2nd century. These sentences borrow some motifs from the other gospel and contain several unusual apocryphal elements. Yeah. It's uncertain. That's more specificity than my Bible says, which is interesting because it's making some conclusions about the manuscript evidence. Mine just says, 
um, that some, unlike the John passage in John, mine says the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 through 8, 11. In um, Mark 16, mine says some of the earliest manuscripts. So there might be more attestation in the earliest manuscripts. for, And I don't know because I haven't studied John 16 recently. Um, but off the top of my head, we so it, it is, it's probable that Mark's gospel had a missing ending and that we don't know what that ending was um, because if it ends where we're looking at verse 8, and the, they, the women, went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We know from the other Gospels that they do go to the disciples, that they don't just say, anything, say nothing. Um, so we think that there was probably another ending. Also, in the Greek, it's like cut off at the middle of the sentence. And they were afraid. It does it doesn't make sense with the Greek grammar. It, there should be a rest, the finished sentence there. Um, so all that to say, we think that the ending is missing to, to Mark. We, and we know that we, we don't think that the early, the early church would have accepted that ending um, because they knew about the resurrection of Jesus. Um, so we're not sure what happened to the lost ending of Mark. But what we have is a later ending, a later ending that was probably not written by the original writer. Any questions about that? I'm not doing it a lot of justice, but, um, but it's an interesting thing. And when you, if you were to read the content of that passage in the rest of Mark, you'd, you'd know why. If it, it doesn't sound like Mark. It doesn't sound like, even in the English, it doesn't sound like Mark. So, um, but yet it's still in the Christian canon, so I still look at it as scripture. Um, but some people don't. Does it really? I bet. And does it have a whole page about um, John 7? Not really. It has quite a bit, but not as much as this. I will say secular liberal scholars of the two passages, they prefer to include John 7 rather than Mark 16. Mark 16 has a lot of elements that can be misinterpreted. Um, in a charismatic line of things, the handling of snakes and things like that. And John 7 has um, this um, pronouncement of mercy upon a woman caught in adultery that can then look for many people like an endorsement of the sin. And so you'll see liberal scholars interpreting it in a different way. So a lot of liberal, modernist, secular scholars prefer to keep John 7 but not Mark 16. I think we got to deal with both of them as Christians, especially because the early church viewed them as scripture. Look at them and say, well, what does this mean? What is the Lord using this to say to us? Any other questions about why does my Bible do this? Why does, um, what does this mean? Okay. Well, as we look at the passage for today, the passage for today, as you know um, from, I'm sure you've heard this passage read before or you've studied it. Um, this passage deals with adultery, deals with a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And um, in order to understand the response of the Jewish leaders to her and Jesus' response to her, it's helpful to look at the Jewish law about adultery. So I've marked for you that that's, you can find that elsewhere. You can find it in Leviticus 20 but you can also find it in Deuteronomy 22. And Deuteronomy 22 goes into a little bit more depth and detail. Um, 
And one of the things that you'll notice, if you were to look that up on your own later, you would notice that, um, that it is a harsh sentence for adultery in the Mosaic Law. Um, the death penalty is um, the result of, is the punishment for adultery during, um, in the, it, for the people of Israel. And that seems so harsh to us. I don't know if that seems harsh to you as well as it does to me. It's, um, and yet it is there in Holy Scripture. It is something that was there throughout the ancient Near East. Many cultures in the ancient Near East had the penalty for adultery as execution, um, which is sobering. Um, uh, Muslims still do that, too. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's just for women, not for in the, I don't know if that's true in the Muslims, but in the Jewish law, it's for both. Is it really? Yes, it is. And so if you were to look, I mean, let's, let's just turn to Deuteronomy 22. It begins at verse 13. It is, and um, in our passage for today, we only see the woman, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But here in Deuteronomy 22, it is for both man and woman, and sometimes it's just for the man. If it looks as though it was a rape, mm-hmm. just the man is, is um, penalized. If it looks as though, and the woman is only the woman and the man together are only penalized if um, if the woman is married or betrothed and the man is not her husband. Does that make sense? So um, we think of adultery as being any kind of fornication with anyone at any time, unless you're in, unless it's any sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage. And that is biblical. That's a biblical viewpoint. But adultery here is specifically defined for a woman and a man who are not married to each other. And the woman would be married to someone else. If the woman has never been married and is not married and not betrothed, then the act means that they are married in the eyes of Israel and they can never divorce. Um, so if they have found each other and, you know, they weren't attached to anyone else, then that's it. They're married. It's done. Um, but if they were attached to someone else, then, um, then comes into play the, the law. Any questions about that? So hard to even talk about it, isn't it? Does it matter if a man is See, that's the funny thing. It doesn't because men were allowed to marry multiple women in that day and age. So if the woman is unmarried and the man is already married, then she becomes another wife of his. It says in verse uh, 24 that if the man and the woman both should be stoned. Exactly. The woman, even though she was found in the city by the man, if she didn't cry out. Well, this is a different, um, this is for a, bet- a woman who's betrothed to someone else. And remember that their betrothal was like marriage. They viewed their betrothal as being irreversible. You had to get a divorce if you wanted to be separated from your betrothed, even though the marriage was not consummated. Um, so, yes, that was seen because they're distinguishing between the city and the country. Because if it happens in the country, it's a rape. If it happens in the city and she doesn't protest, it, because the idea was that it, within the community, that kind of um, yelling and protestation would involve other people. If you think about it, they did not have really, not that we have really solid buildings, but they did not have really solid buildings and walls and doors. So it's pretty hard to not know what your neighbor's up to. It's pretty hard to hide in that kind of a setting. It's pretty hard to 
keep things out of the public eye, essentially. Does that make sense? Um, one of the things, looking at verse 22, which is specifically, that's the specific background for our situation in, um, in John 8. If a man is found with the wife of another man, see, again, it's that the woman is married to someone else. And in the Hebrew, it says found lying. What that means is that it's not just this appearance of wrongdoing. It's not just that they were in the wrong place together at the wrong time or um, compromising situation. The, and I take some measure of comfort from this. The law was meant to show that there had to be um, two witnesses to the fact that these two people were um, definitely engaged in the act. So you see that um, there's no question of a compromising situation. You, it has to be um, visibly seen and on, without a doubt, what they were doing. Does that make sense? So it, it, it's very hard, actually, with, it, with this specification in the law to catch someone in this situation. Um, and, and that gives me some measure of reassurance that the death penalty was not lightly administered. Um, there had to be two witnesses whose testimony corroborated exactly. So they had to both be there at the exact same time seeing the exact same thing. And the exact same thing that they're seeing has to be, without a doubt, um, an act of adultery. Any, and um, also, just so you know, within ancient Israel, the death penalty, when there was a stoning, and verse 22 does not specify the mode of execution, but the next passage says stoning. So in our passage, we see that they're applying the stoning to this particular circumstance. In a stoning in the ancient world, the witnesses who are accusing the person or persons, they were the first ones who threw the stones. The, the reason for that was that if they were lying, the blood of the person would be upon their head and they would be murderers in God's eyes. And they would experience the consequences of that. You see without, throughout um, the people of Israel that God is actively involved in allowing people to experience the consequences of their actions. In, in a way that's heightened and in a way that's very directly um, engaged. Does that make sense? Do you see that when you read the Old Testament? I see that when I read the Old Testament. So what they're saying, and even if you were to go and to read more of 22, it says, um, when, and in the Leviticus passage, that in this unnatural relationship, the idea in other unnatural relationships that fall under the category of fornication as well, um, the Lord says through Scripture that they will have no children. That there will be no children as the product of this union because it's not life-giving. If it's not according to the law, there will be no children. So you see God um, actively engaged. We don't say that now because we don't know that, and it's not true. You know, a childless couple does not mean that something's wrong with them morally. But in ancient Israel, God made sure that that was the case and that that was the ex expectation. Um, now on to, well, why, why the death penalty in the first place? Because I don't know about you, but whenever I read something in Scripture that I have a really hard time with, I, start, I fight it, and I often will ask, well, God, why is this in here? Yes, there's the exegesis and the studying that we can do through the historical background, looking at the language, but I often, if there's something that I'm struggling with that I don't like, I always want to ask God why, <laughs> because I trust him, and I trust that his reasoning for something is better than my own understanding of it. I trust that 
He has a purpose for something that's in scripture, even if I don't like it. So I ask him, why? Well, why? Well, and I, I, th- I do believe so. I, I do believe that with um, this, these laws and with the death penalty throughout ancient Israel, you see the death penalty for blasphemy. You see it for, other, um, for, for working on the Sabbath. You see it for other things that are lesser than what we today, in our society today, we only allow the death penalty for murder, right? But in ancient Israel, it was different. And the reason why it was different was because the people of ancient Israel were a theocracy. You know what that is? That's a political state that's ruled by God. And so as a theocracy, the people of Israel, and we've talked about this before, were meant to show forth the standard of God's holiness to the nations around them. They were meant to show to the nations around them what God's character, God's holy character was like. And that's why we see the Ten Commandments being given to the people of Israel. How, do, um, how, do they, how are they God's people in the world except that they are meant to reflect God's character to the people, the other nations um, around them? And so what that means is that whenever there is an egregious sin that so clearly does not reflect God's character, you see in the Old Testament and throughout the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, that those specific sins that are um, an egregious misrepresentation of God's holiness are, um, are dealt with immediately. And in that society, I think within the church as the New Testament people of God, whenever we think about... Um, and Paul talks about this in the first century in his letters about excommunication as being a way of saying, this is not what we endorse for the people of God. This is not something that is our standard. Even when we have compassion on a person who's sinning, we can still say this is not our standard. Um, sometimes we want to say we want to have so much compassion that we makes it look like we're endorsing the behavior or the sin. And um, Paul says, no, you you. In some ways, yes, you are compassionate, but you need to step aside so that people don't confuse the sinful behavior with the God's ideal for human behavior. And essentially, in the Old Testament people of Israel, for a time, and this is not the present time, but for that present, that time, when the, when the scripture was written, um, the only way of saying this is not a part of God's people, this is not a part of behavior that God endorses, was to cut the person off from Israel. And that meant, that is why the execution. It's so hard, I can't even say it, it's so hard to say, because it's so painful to think about um, God endorsing this kind of excommunication for his theocratic people. Come back at me about that. I see you nodding, uh, that you agree it's difficult. This is a time in in history when you had uh, people fighting in arenas for their lives against animals. Yes. And bull. You know, we have bullfighting now even, but still, you've got to remember it's a whole different era than we are familiar with. It's absolutely true, um, and with it is definitely a different area, era with different cultural expectations. Also, again, I highlight the difference between what it means to be God's theocratic people, a nation that is specifically ruled by God himself, that is meant to be the visible presentation of God's holiness to the people around him. Well, as the church, it's different for us now. Who is our visible presentation, our tangible human presentation of God's holiness? 
Jesus. It's not us as the church. And that's where so many people get so disillusioned with the church, when we're not perfect. How many people have you heard that say, well, I can't, I love Jesus, Jesus is great, but I don't want to go to church. I can't stand all the hypocrisy. Well, it's true. We're sinful. We're sinful individuals, even though we're saved by grace and we have the forgiveness of sins. But we don't perfectly show forth God's character to the world. But we believe in the one who does. And we find our identity as God's people in the one who does, through faith in the one who does. And so Jesus shows forth this perfect holiness of God to the rest of the world, to the nations around us. So we're, we're not, the church is in no way a theocratic um, presentation of God's holiness to the world. Um, you know, in some moments we have the appearance, when things are going really well, then we can say, well, that's, a, that's great, that's God doing that in and through us. And that's that moment when we're a light on a hill the way we should be. But we, we aren't always. We are sometimes, but we aren't always. But Jesus always is. Um, any more questions, especially? Yeah, Jane. I'm chasing a rabbit a little well, bit. But when did Israel as a nation become the Theological, well, it's a theological question. Yeah. You know, I think, I would actually say, I would actually, I mean, I haven't read about this, so I don't know what other scho- what scholars say. I would say it's that moment that Ezekiel sees in his vision when the presence of God lifts up from the temple and departs. From that moment on, God's tangible, holy presence mm-hmm. is not there in the midst of the people of Israel. That was the only thing they were governed by God when God's presence was there. Um, and, and he departs, and he doesn't come back, well, even yeah. once the exile's over. We don't, and that's what we see for the early churches, that they understood Jesus himself as to be, to be the return of God's tangible, holy presence in the physical manifestation, now no longer intended in the tabernacle and the temple, mm-hmm. in that man-made structure, but now intended in human flesh, made, you know, it's the Emmanuel principle, God with us. Yeah. So Ezekiel's vision was before the exile of Babylon. It it was during, he was seeing the vision happen probably right as it was, I think he was seeing the vision right as it was happening or just before it was happening. Um, because it, it, and I believe it does happen that the, the Lord departs, and they set, and they believe that that was the only reason why the temple could be destroyed the way it was, it was because the presence of God was no longer there protecting it. So even temple. You look at the post-exilic prophets. Prophets, if you look at Haggai, they talk about well, you know, it's it's there, but it's not there. The splendor is not there. We might have all the gold, and they don't at that point. But we can get all the gold. We can get all the whatever. But it's nothing without the presence of God. And what we see with Jesus is that then the presence is back. The presence of God is tangibly manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. Is it tied at all to the Ark the Well, the Ark of the Covenant was part of that. Yeah. I think it's good that the Ark, I think it's totally God's providence that the Ark is, we don't know where it is. It's gone and disappeared. Maybe it's still in Babylon. Some people say it's in Ethiopia. Yeah. Maybe. But we don't need it. We don't need it. We got Jesus, you know. Um, any other questions about it? It's so difficult theologically to put all this in perspective, but I think that this background is helpful because I don't know about you, but when I look at this, when I look at this passage in John, I want to say, 
I want to say that Jesus is completely turning away from the Mosaic law and saying, well, that's not the just consequence for the actions of this woman. But that, in fact, is not what he's saying. And I think when we look at it more closely, even though we in the 21st century want to say, well, he's, he's, not, he's totally eradicating that penalty, um, that punishment for death, um, I will maintain that he is not. You can get mad at me now, but let's look at the study first and then tell me if you're still mad at me at the end, at the end of looking at the actual passage. Um, so in this passage, uh, one of the things that's been helpful for me in understanding it is that phrase, between a rock and a hard place. I'll put that on your, on your handout. The religious leaders here, they are going for it. They are specifically trying to trap Jesus. And we know that they've done this before. Right? They're trying to get Jesus to say something that will, I, that will cause some segment of the crowd to leave um, and will get him in trouble either with the Jewish religious authorities or with the Roman authorities. And we've seen this before, right? We've seen this in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And there, do you remember that passage? That passage is where um, the leaders come to him and ask him, are we supposed to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Remember that that's a trap because if he says, he says yes, we're supposed to pay taxes to Caesar, then the people will um, rebel, especially those um, righteous, holy um, people who are so unhappy with the Roman overlords and who even believed that um, on that Roman coin, what was there on the Roman coin? face, right, and that's what Jesus says, there's a likeness, a face um, of the emperor, and for the Jewish people, for the strict monotheistic Jews, any image of anything was associated with idolatry, and the fact that the Roman emperor was worshipped by his people was even worse, so that there was a spiritual uncleanness that came along with Gentile money, so, you know, the strict um, religious um, Jewish sects would want nothing to do with Roman money if they could ha- have it. I mean, remember that the tax collectors were shunned, and it wasn't just because they were unfairly taxing people, it was because they had this contact with this unclean money. They must be idolaters. Uh, idolaters, however you say that. Anyway, so that um, if he says, if he says t- pay the tax, then he'll get in trouble with the strict, um, his fellow Jews. If he says, don't pay the tax, then the Jewish authorities can go to the Romans and say, he was telling people not to pay their taxes. He is a troublemaker, and you have to get rid of him. Jesus is brilliant there, and he is brilliant in our passage for today. I love this. I love, yes, he's the son of God, but he is a genius. He comes up with this genius answer, and I love it. So remember what he says about the taxes. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to God what is God's. Whose face is on it? Caesar's? Well, give it back to him. You don't need it. Um, And give what is um, God's to God. It's a brilliant, and he completely silences the people trying to trap him. Well, he does this again today in this passage. They are trying to trap Jesus. And, you know, to be honest, I did not notice this until I read it again to begin studying for today. I did not notice it, but it's true that... um, Jesus is there. I always thought that Jesus kind of came upon this situation while he was in the temple. No, Jesus is in the temple, and he's preaching and teaching, and he's sitting down. That's how they taught. 
Maybe I'll take a stab at that sometime. And the scribes and the Pharisees bring a woman to him. And they place her in the midst and they say to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And then we have a comment from the the writer. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Do you see that? They're trying to catch him between the one law and the other. Either he says, no, you should not uphold the Mosaic law, and then, um, then he'll be seen to be subverting the Jewish faith, and um, they can place the Jewish leaders can place a charge against him on that count, or he's, he'll say, no, you need to uphold the Jewish law. And then that, what they could do is they could go to the Roman leaders, they could go to Pilate and say, well, he's not obeying Rome, because one of the things that Rome required of all of the countries that it occupied was that none of the leaders in the country that was occupied by Rome were allowed um, the right of capital punishment. Rome took that right away from them, and it was a way of exercising control while still endorsing the leadership on the ground. It was a kind of tribute, a privilege that Rome claimed for itself in every country that it occupied. Um, And so we see this later on. We see this in the Passion narratives about Jesus, that the Jewish leaders say to Pilate, we can't do anything about him. You have to do something about him. They're trying to visibly be obedient, but we know from other historians that they weren't always so obedient. Sometimes Rome had to turn a blind eye because um, there, was, there were sometimes public lynchings in, Rome, or in Jerusalem and Judea, and at that moment Rome would turn a blind eye. But they're trying to get Jesus in trouble. They're trying to get Jesus in trouble either with Jewish authorities or with the Roman authorities. Jesus is too smart for them, though. Um, and... And I will say that the way the question is asked, we have some idea that they are already aware of Jesus' leaning on this kind of thing. They already know that Jesus is one who has mercy. They're expecting him to say, no, you break the Mosaic law and you don't penalize the woman. Um, They're expecting that in the way that they're asking the question, which is very interesting and very encouraging based on that discussion we just had about the ancient Near East and about the death penalty. Jesus, we already have this sense that Jesus would, prob- would want to have this woman exonerated, would not want the penalty to be what it is. Um, and so, um, well, so they're trying to trap Jesus. These leaders have already trapped the woman. And within the text itself, there's proof that, that, that um, they had probably laid a trap for her to catch her in the act. It says very specifically in the Greek text that she was taken with her shame upon her. That's an accurate translation of what it says in verse 3. She was caught in the very moment. Um, that There is no doubt about her guilt in this matter, in the way they present her to Jesus. The question is not, is she guilty? The question is, what do we do with her? And um, the only way that they could have done that was by setting a trap. The only way that they would have two witnesses who saw exactly the same thing, who um, caught her right in the moment, in flagrante, who um, then allowed the man to go free so that they would only penalize the woman, they have a special vindictiveness for this woman in particular. And we're not sure why. We don't know the motivation behind that. But um, we do know that this, the Mosaic Law was probably not kept 
in this regard for a long time. That, um, and we see it even in the New Testament, that very often a husband, if his wife, he suspected his wife of adultery, he would have mercy on her, not want to see her dead, and rather divorce her. You see this, where else do we see this in the New Testament? In Matthew. We see it in Matthew with Joseph and Mary. Remember, he, um, it says in, in Matthew that he was, had resolved to put her away quietly. He knew she was pregnant, and he knew that he was not the father. And he didn't have that special revelation from the angel yet that would tell him that the baby was God's baby. He, he didn't know what to do, but he was going to have mercy on her. He was not going to expose her to public shame and potential stoning. He was not going to try to catch her in the act of adultery. He was going, he was a merciful man. He was going to try to put her away quietly, divorce her quietly. Well, whoever this woman's husband is, He is not as noble as Joseph. We don't know what his motives were, but we know that he would stand to gain material, materially. If his wife was, if he divorced his wife, he would no longer keep her property. She would take her property with her, according to the law. But if he, um, if she were to die, he would be a widower, and he would keep her estate or her property or her dowry. It's very sobering to think. Um, how these forces, even this woman's own husband, were arrayed against her, rooting for her death. And so we say, like Jesus, the poor thing, she has not been dealt with kindly. And maybe, and we don't know this, and I get imaginative, but perhaps she hadn't been dealt with kindly all along, and that might have been what drove her to this. Jesus sees her, and he has compassion on her, And um, he not only has compassion on her, but he's also brilliant, just like he was in Mark, right? He's brilliant. He's not going to let her get caught in this trap that she's already been caught in. He's not going to let that happen. He also himself will not be caught in this trap. And so we see what he does. First of all, he stalls and starts to write on the ground. We never see him doing this. We don't see him doing this anywhere else in Scripture. What is he doing? It's so funny. What is he doing? What do you think he's doing? Well, see, I, we don't know. Scholars have lots of different ideas about what he's doing. But one thing for certain is he is buying time because they keep pressing him. They keep trying to get him to respond. Some people, some different options. Um, he, he might be writing out the sins of her accusers on the ground. Um, it says in Job 13, 26, For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. So there's this idea of writing down the sins of another. He might be writing down the sins of her accusers so that then they would see it. And maybe that was part of what led them to say, oh, no, you're right. We have, we have sinned as well. Um, we have sinned in the way that we have deceived this woman and trapped her. We have a vindictiveness within ourselves that is not righteous. Might be that. Might be that um, he is enacting the role of a Roman judge. I think this is highly unlikely. They would write their sentences out before they proclaimed them. I don't think he's doing that. It's also possible that he is interpreting the Mosaic law. Do you know about Hebrew, that the Hebrew letters are, well, first of all, they're backwards. You read them right to left. And second of all, in the ancient Hebrew um, writings, all you have are the consonants. Do you know this? And the vowels are made by the dots around the consonants. 
And so um, it might be that he's looking for a better translation of the Mosaic law, and that if you speak the law, if you speak the words of scripture out, there's only one interpretation. There's only interp- the interpretation that you speak. Can you see why they didn't trust the written word? If you write it down, you could point it differently, and you would have a different interpretation. So maybe he's doing a little bit of on-the-spot exegesis on the ground with his Hebrew. But we are certain, like I said, we're not sure what he's doing, but he is definitely buying himself some time. He's avoiding answering them. Um, Genius takes some time, doesn't it? He's brilliant, and he's the son of God. But I think he's just waiting for just the right thing to say. If he were to do nothing, what do you think would happen to this poor woman? She'd be stoned. If he does nothing, she will be stoned. He knows he has to do something. But he is not willing to be caught in their trap either. Yeah, I think you're right. This is not some light judgment. No. I agree. I agree. I think he's very deliberate. He's very thoughtful. Oh, did you ever meet someone who we, you know, would say something to you, and you're like, "How did you know what was going on in my head?" That's scary. But sometimes people have great intuition, whether they know you well or not. Jesus, I think of him as having the greatest intuition of all. I mean, certainly being God and being omniscient. But we're not sure how much of that divine omniscience he has. As human, certainly when he's um, pre-existent, when he is then exalted to the right hand of the Father, he has all divine omniscience. But how much of that all pervasive knowledge does he have uh, in the flesh? We don't know, but I think he has a lot of it. But maybe it just doesn't, it's not as immediate as it would be otherwise. Maybe it takes a little time. Maybe he is praying, um, asking the Father to show him what is the right judgment, what is the divine judgment in this instance. Um, well, um, it turns out that his very words um, pierce the hearts of her accusers. What does he say? He says, let him who is with, without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Remember that her accusers, those witnesses, um, were to be the first ones to throw a stone. So he is specifically targeting those two witnesses who were claiming that they saw her do this. They caught her in the act. And they could have probably only done this by laying a trap for her. He is specifically pointing not just to general sinfulness. We always hear this um, used about general sinfulness. Let he who is without sin, and how that's none of us. Um, None of us is without sin. And if we were to use that as a blanket um, platitude, we would not be able to have a justice system in the United States. Um, let he, if we were not able to have human judges who could administer justice in our country um, because they were sinful, then there would be no judges. So Jesus is not saying don't judge at all. Don't have human judges at all. Have no sense of earthly justice. He's not saying that at all, and you'll hear that in several circles. Well, and there is that, judge not lest you be judged. There is that sense that um, uh, we cannot look at the speck in our brother's eye until we take the moat out of our own eye. Um, That we are not to be judging other people because we ourselves are sinners. And yet there um, there is some sense in which leadership is needed. God needs 
agents on earth, and yet anyone who is drawn into leadership, um, especially in Jesus' name, has to be um, completely, um, consistently searching his or her own soul for its own blights and sinfulness before beginning to even look at anything else. So there's that sense in which um, we are each sinful, and even if we are to be making decisions that affect other people, we must always um, recognize our own sinfulness first, and that will allow us to have more mercy than we might otherwise humanly have. That allows us to be drawn into knowing God's own forgiveness for our sins, which gives us the grace to offer grace to other people. So he's not saying don't have any kind of human judgment or consequences for public actions. But what he is saying is that um, he's also saying specifically that these leaders were not sinless in the way that they trapped this woman, in the way that they brought her to him. Uh, And praise God for his wisdom and his brilliance. The stones, it's such a dramatic scene. Can't you see the stones just falling out of their hands one by one? I've seen so many Jesus films on this that portray this one scene, and each one is beautiful. It's so beautiful because each one of us knows that we are that woman. We are that woman kneeling in the dust. Um, even Even if our sins have not been made public, have not been exposed for all the world to see, we know them, and we know that God knows them. Jesus sees her. He knows her sin. He knows she's guilty. And yet he loves her and he forgives her. He says, neither do I condemn you. Jesus, the only one who is without sin, could condemn her. And yet he does not. And the reason why he does not is not because there aren't any consequences for her actions, but rather because, and I do believe that every time Jesus says this in his earthly life, and he says, your sins are forgiven. He, he says it because he knows how his ministry will end. He knows the reason why he came. He knows that his ministry will end with his own death. And that his own death will be the moment when the penalty for every sin that was ever committed would be laid on his own shoulders. So he pardons her knowing that he himself will be the one to die for the sin that she committed that day. And it is that grace and that forgiveness um, that he offers to her, that um, life that he gives to her. He gives her life instead of death, just as he gives us life instead of death. And that life comes through receiving that full pardon, um, that wiping clean of the slate in God's eyes, that we are no longer adulterers or liars or gossipers or um, angry people or um, people who waste their time and things that aren't important. All of those things that we might do or identify ourselves as doing, they're wiped away in God's eyes because of what Jesus has done for us. And it is only in receiving that good news, receiving that God has indeed sent his son to die for us, that we might have forgiveness for our sins. Um, It is only that good news that gives us the courage to make a clean break with sin. Someone said to me, well, how can Jesus say, go and from now on sin no more, when he knows human nature? 
He knows that even though we believe in him, we will keep on sinning in this life in ways um, that we might not want to. And yet he also knows that through receiving that full pardon, through receiving God's grace, there is a part of us that is changed forever. It might not always be um, in the way that we want it. We might not see the progress that we want to see. And yet there's a part of us that loses a taste for sin or certain sins. I don't know if you've had that experience where some things, and the only way I've seen it is through my journal, journaling and looking back on my journal and saying, I used to be obsessed about that one thing. I could not stop obsessing about it, and I could not stop doing it or thinking it. And for some reason that now, it's not an issue. I don't, I don't care. I'm not attached to that thing. And, but that only happens through receiving that pardon, that mercy of God. And, it, and, um, and it's God, God's work in us. So he's inviting her to allow the Holy Spirit to do God's work in her, um, to take that taste for sin out of her mouth um, so that she might go and sin no more. Thanks be to God that he does that for us. Um, I'm just going to read the quote. Here then the mercy of God and his truth meet. For only in the mouth of the sinless Jesus can the full condemnation of sin and the full demand for the righteousness of God march with the authoritative pronouncement of his mercy and charity. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you hold at bay our accusers, those accusers outside of us and those that would... Um, those voices inside our own head that accuse us when we do wrong. Um, thank you for your forgiveness and for the costly price of uh, your forgiveness, that cost of your own death for us. And we receive your death against, again for us through faith in you. We receive the forgiveness of sins. And we say, yes, let your death be for us. And we say, yes, take that taste of sin out of our mouths. Let us know your joy to such full extent that we can't even turn our eyes to what we once thought important. Uh, redeem us fully and purify us. And let us stand with you at the end of all time on judgment day so that we might hear again your voice saying, neither do I condemn you. So we give you thanks and praise for who you are and what you've done for us. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.